All right, we're continuing our journey through the Lord's Prayer this morning. And if you would turn to Matthew chapter 6, we are in what is the fifth petition, um, which will be uh, verse um, uh, 12. And then we'll also look at a postscript, which is verses 14 and 15, where Christ takes more time to further emphasize what he's saying here in the fifth petition, which grants it even greater gravity and weight. Just to catch us up to where we are, remember how the prayer starts. Remember the foundation for the prayer that it is because of who God is that we can even pray these things at all. That we have any ability to petition anything from him at all. Were he a king who was distant and didn't care about us, uh, how easy do you think it would be to petition him? Have any of you ever had like a really high up, really important, famous boss or a person that you had to deal with, how easy is it for you to get a petition across to them or to engage them at all, right? Because of their distance, they like to create curious layers so that you have to go through these channels and red tape and such to even get to them. But God, our Father says that it is in the person and work of Christ that you now can come boldly before the throne with he alone as your mediator, and you're even empowered by the Spirit to, to be able to ask for things that you didn't even know you needed, that you would be stirred and led and guided. How gracious is our God that he provides every means necessary that we would know exactly what it means to be a son or daughter of the Most High God and have access to every spiritual blessing as the heirs that we have become in Christ alone. Amen? And so how gracious our God is that he, as Christ says, knows what we need before we could even ask for it, which gives us the ability to care more for his glory than we could care even for ourselves. And so that's why the prayer begins with our Father, which is the invocation, and then goes on to the first petition, hallowed be your name, that God's glory would be the thing that is most important to us, that we would care most that God would be glorified. Because when he's glorified, what does that mean for us? That is our highest good as well, right? Remember from our time in Habakkuk, after everything, every question was asked, remember what Habakkuk requested in that prayer. He said, Lord, please let your mercy and your kindness be known in the midst of this judgment. Do not let it, your glory be tarnished in any way, shape, or form is another way of saying that. So even Habakkuk is teaching us as Christ now is, that God's glory is what is most important. And so inherent within every petition, you have to see behind every petition that God's glory is what's most important. Remember, even last week as we, we talked about give us this day our daily bread, even that is about God's glory. Remember, it's not just about us being fed. It's as it says in the Proverbs that we read, Proverbs 30, um, that we would have what we needed so that we would either not think too highly of ourselves or too little of God or that we would dishonor him by trying to steal what we thought we needed. So even in that prayer, it is pregnant with an understanding that God would be glorified in all things and that we would be equipped to glorify God in all things. So as we come to this petition this morning, notice that in this second section of petitions, the first has to do with the body, but the next two have to do with our souls. This one, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and the one after it where we ask that he would lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. Would that we had that same sort of pattern that we cared more for our souls than we did for our own bodies. But that's just not true of most of us, is it? 
We, we care way more about the outward appearance than the inward condition. And so it would do us good to notice what Christ is teaching us and have it be a pattern that would change our lives, that we would begin to truly care more about who we are in Christ and developing and maturing in that reality as opposed to only what is external that's just going to go away anyway and nobody really remembers anyway. How many of you, when you are flattered, Anybody who's ever been flattered by something external, how, how many of you that was enough? You, you've said, all right, I, I don't need any more compliments. You turned to your spouse and said, don't ever compliment me again. That's the summum bonum. We're done. We're good. I don't need you to tell me I look great anymore. No, we're insatiable, aren't we? We're absolutely insatiable when it comes to flattery. And how many of you have had a circumstance where you got 10 or 12 or 15 compliments and one person snuck up and said, yeah, but you really didn't do that good. Here's where you messed up. Which one did you think about more, the 15 compliments or the one critique? I've stayed up nights meditating on trying to figure out how to deal with that one critique to my own not good. And so... Notice that Christ is trying to set us free from those types of things, that it's not the external that matters at all. It matters minimally, but it matters only in the sense that it affords us the ability to glorify God and not ourselves. So as we come to this petition, may we be acutely aware of what it is that Christ came to do. May we be acutely aware of how what Christ came to do truly allows us to be able to glorify the Lord our God. So, this morning, uh, the thing that I want us to walk away with, if you walk away with nothing else, is this, that God forgives us our debts, which sets us free to in turn forgive others as ambassadors of his reconciliation. Let me say that again. <clears throat> God forgives us our debts, which sets us free to in turn forgive others as ambassadors of, rec of his reconciliation. It's very, very important that we recognize that the forgiveness that we've been given is for a purpose. And what's interesting is every single one of these petitions have behind it some conditional elements, like things that we should do with it. But for whatever reason, Christ saw fit in the power of the Spirit to state a condition immediately, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and then go on to repeat it again in verses 14 and 15. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it gets repeated again. And all throughout the Gospels, it gets repeated again and again and again that we are to be demarcated by our ability to forgive. The world will know us by the love that we have for one another. Well, it's not inherent within that love, this ability to forgive one another. Let me state straight away so that we're not confused here. I am not conflating forgiveness and reconciliation. Let me just briefly say what I mean by that. Just because you forgive someone doesn't mean that everything is now okay. It doesn't mean that there's not some other steps that need to be taken and dealt with so that you can truly be reconciled to one another. Let me also say that I understand that for some of you, given the gravity and the magnitude of whatever has happened to you, it's not the same as if someone cuts you off on the freeway and you knew them, uh, they had an ichthus fish on their car and you re recognized it was me who cut you off. <laughs> Maybe. Um, I try to be conscientious and I don't have the ichthus fish as it turns out. But it's not the same thing as some of the other horrible things that have been done to some of us, myself included, and some of you. 
So I recognize that there will be a much larger process in this, and we can't get to all of that this morning, but what we are dealing with is the very first step. What I do know is there can be absolutely no reconciliation if there be no forgiveness. And I do recognize that reconciliation is often a very long process, and for some of you, um, because of circumstances of the situation, it may not be something that happens in this life. And so I recognize the gravity of that. But first and foremost, we have to make sure, again, that we ground ourselves in what is most true. So the question for us is, why did Christ take on flesh, walk among us, lay down his life, and take it up again? So why did Christ come? So that our food would taste better, right? So that our kids would behave, right? Yeah, that didn't work so well either. Uh, so that we would never die. We still die in this life. Now, Christ came very specifically so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God the Father. Christ specifically came so that we could be his children. If you would listen to what Colossians 2, 11 through 14 says, and keep this verse in your mind as we go through this service and even look at baptism later on in the service. It says, In Jesus also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh, by circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all. How many? all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So often I do think that sometimes we move away from and forget why Christ truly came. And we get confused and conflated with all of the stuff that goes on in our lives and all of the offenses that come at us. We forget that Christ came to forgive, but not just to forgive us singularly, but to forgive us as a family so that we could grow in that family and then extend that forgiveness to one another as a means of reflecting who we are in Christ. Let me ask you, of the, of the Christians that you know, the ones that are truly forgiving, what do you, what do you think about them? Do, do you want to be around the Christians who are truly forgiving and loving. Not, not that they ignore your sin and, and just pat you on the back like some loving uncle or aunt, but, but who truly love you enough to call you to repentance when you need it, but genuinely walk with you and love you through that process, and you know they love you as you work through things. Are those the kind of Christians you want to be around? Are you that Christian? Are you that Christian for others? Because I do know this, I know the Christians you don't want to be around. You don't want to be around the ones who are constantly pointing their finger at you and calling you to live up to something that you could never live up to, no matter how hard you ever tried. You know, I know you don't want to be around those who would never extend you forgiveness, who are constantly there to celebrate and dance when you fall. And are you that Christian? Are you that Christian that you yourself wouldn't even want to be around? Are you Christ-like? Because remember how Christ dealt with these things. Even the Pharisees. See, we like to sometimes trash the Pharisees, but remember he loved them too. Who was Paul again? 
He was a guy named Saul, one of the worst of the worst. And Jesus so loved him that he showed up personally and said, Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the goads? Why do you persecute me? He loved Saul. I think he loved Simon too when he was at Simon the Pharisee's house in Luke chapter 7. And the woman comes in and washes his feet. And Simon is thinking the things that he's thinking about this woman who is known for her sin. And he says, if he knew who she was, he wouldn't let her touch him. No, Simon, if he knew who you were, he wouldn't dine at your table is the better thing to say. But he did know. He knew who both of them were. And he called Simon to the same repentance that she had accepted. Why would he go to the trouble of telling him the story that he told him if he didn't love him? If he didn't want him to know that he who has loved, been loved much, loves much. And so Jesus gives us this glorious example that we who are forgiven our debts are called to forgive our debtors. But let's step into the petition. Let's step into that first half and look at and forgive us our debts. Now, pregnant within this is a number of confessions. You cannot ask for forgiveness for something that you don't know that you are wrong about, right? So in praying this, we are straight away saying, one, I have sinned, Lord. Think about David in Psalm 51, 4, where he says, and he's talking about his sin against Bathsheba. And remember, he had not only Uriah killed, but a number of men were killed in that process as well, as he sent a bunch of people to die to make sure that Uriah would be one of them. So there's a number of people that he should have asked their forgiveness of. But first he turns to the Lord and he says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. See, David knew that he had done something that had violated the relationship with God, his father. And it concerned him. And he knew that that's what needed to be made right first before he could deal with anything else. And we, if we were going to pray and forgive us our debts, we are confessing that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Also inherent within this, this statement is a confession that God our Father is willing to forgive. How many of you go to someone knowing they're not going to give you what you're going to ask for? How many of you are that sadomasochistic? That you just love, I'm going to go and ask for something knowing this guy's going to reject me. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait. I love rejection. I'm the Rodney Dangerfield. I know that reference is, it's lost on most of you. But none of us loves going to someone that we know is going to time and again say, no, you're not worth what you ask for. But thanks for coming. We don't go to those people. And yet, if we're going to pray this, we're confessing that we know that our Father has the ability and the willingness and the want to grant us what we ask. And the fact that we call it a debt is also pregnant with meaning. I know in the passage in Luke where he speaks of the Lord's Prayer, it uses the term trespasses, but here the term debt is used. And listen at what um, 17th century Dutch theologian Herman Witsius says about this. He says, man's first debt is obedience to God. Now, let me ask you, how are we doing with that debt? How many of you have said, man, I'm, I'm killing it in obedience. I think I'm running 100% maybe, least, minimum. Well, no, none of us. So we are already, if that is our debt, if our, our, if our debt to God who created us and whose image we are created, if our debt to him is obedience because he is our creator, 
then we have all failed. Listen to what Herman says as he goes on. He says, when that debt has not been paid, it is followed by another debt of sin, by which the sinner owes a debt to divine justice. So we are truly indeed debtors. If God created us and if God said your calling as image bearers is to fill the earth with my glory and we have failed in any way, shape, nor form, we are indebted and we have failed. All of us categorically, myself chief among you. Now, who pays the debt? Now, if we say, and forgive us our debts, how can God do that? So does God just say, yeah, it's cool. That's fine. It's, it's unconditional love, as I hear some people say of the gospel. No, actually, it's not. God's love, as it turns out, is not unconditional at all. There is a condition, and it's justice. And that is paid by someone, either you in judgment or Christ in judgment. Either Christ bore your sin in totality, past, present, and future on the cross, and he exhausted God's wrath on behalf of said sin, or we are all in trouble. You understand? If there's anything left undone that we've got to kind of figure out, we've got to come up, like we've got to come up with what's the riddle in Revelation, like we've got to solve that and then figure it out from there, we're in trouble. We are really in trouble if Christ's work was not total. And if any of you would say, yes, I am willing to stand before the creator and pay for what I have done. Jaw set like flint. You will get what you ask for. And you will regret it. But how gracious is God that he says, I'm not. In fact, you have to know that God is not just if he just ignores our sin. If he says there is no payment for said sin. In his justice, but look at how merciful. That means he's even more merciful and more gracious than we could ever comprehend that he would say, but I will satisfy that justice with my own son. I will come in flesh and incarnate and take on all that you could not bear and offer it back to you. The conditions met so that you could have it unconditionally. And so, the Lord our God, when we pray and forgive us our debts, we are confessing to all of those things being true. Those things have significant and profound meaning, and we should never move on from them as if they were not important truths for us to understand and engage and enjoy and live life more abundantly as a result. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait a minute now. How can Jesus, who is perfect, pray and forgive us our debts? Well, I'm not going to get into that particular theological quagmire other than to say, if he's perfect, there's no debt to pay. So he can say it with it already being taken care of, as it were, by his perfection. And he's praying it in solidarity with us, his people, and giving it to us as a gift for us to be comforted as children of God. And so... If you had the ability and the courage, which I don't think any of us have, to catalog every single solitary one of your sins. Now remember, there's also an aspect to this question that is even your righteous deeds are filthy rags. 
So understand that this is pretty much every deed you've ever done. If you could catalog it, could you figure out how to pay for it? Would you ever live long enough to know how to pay for it? No. And if we had the courage to do all of these things, how great do you think your debt would truly be? I think it would pale in comparison to our current national debt, which is in the trillions. None of us, if we were able actually to see it, to witness what it truly was, I don't think any of us would have the courage to say, yeah, I'll, I'll pay for that. But here's the good news. The Lord doesn't ever let you know the totality of your debt. And you'll never know. You're not going to get to heaven. Here's what's not going to happen. You're not getting to heaven and God says, all right, I've got a film for you to watch. And it's the totality. And it's a good thing it's an eternity, by the way, because it's going to take a while. I'm going to show you everything you ever did wrong, just so you know how good I am. No, no, no. As far as the east is from the west, it is forgotten. It is done. It's gone. You will not hear of it again. There will not be a long line by which we're going to have to stand in, and I hope you're not behind me, by the way, if this is the case, in which we're going to have to see our sin writ large. It's done. It's finished. It's taken care of. How merciful is God that we do not have to catalog. We do not have to experience again. We get the opportunity to have in full what it means to be a son or daughter. And then, how much greater should be our praise as a result of that? How much more should we be giving thanks for so great a debt being forgiven by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone? See, those words have significant meaning. That God in his grace alone would grant us the personal work of Christ alone, and all he asks for from us is surrender by faith alone. The thing I would say to you this morning is if Christ's work on the cross and in the resurrection and in the ascension and in his return is not precious to you, please take stock of why. If, if you're not truly thankful and not affected and humbled by Christ's work for you, you, please, you need to take stock of your heart because it means you may not be what you think you are. And the last thing that I would want for you to ever hear is if you stood before him and heard the words from Matthew 7, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, for I never knew you. And I don't say those things to make you more neurotic or to make you more worried. If you care at all, and if you're working through this at all, you're in good shape. But if you couldn't care less and you're growing in your arrogance by the day, and you see more the specks in the eyes of others than the planks that rest in your own, I worry for you. And so as we turn from and forgive us our debts to the second part, as we also have forgiven our debtors, let me say straight away that this is not a condition such that if you don't forgive others first, then God won't forgive you. But if you forgive others first, then God will forgive you. That's not how this works. How it works, what he's saying essentially is you who have been forgiven have been set free to do this. You now can do what you could never have done before. You now can forgive where there was no possibility, where you didn't have the power or the ability, and now you have been given a task, a mission. We are to be ones who loose what God looses and sets free those from the burdens 
of unforgiveness. And so it says, as we have also forgiven our debtors, remember that this is the only petition that comes with a stated and a repeated requirement or condition. That means we really need to pay attention to it. And it's something that we should really lean into this Lord's day and ask, Lord, is there any way in which I am failing to live this out? What are the things that are keeping me from being what you set me free to be and do? Because you are not free indeed if you cannot forgive. You know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. For those of you who have harbored unforgiveness and struggled with pursuing reconciliation, you know exactly what I'm talking about because it's the millstone that hangs around you at all times and it never leaves you. It's the thing that defines you more than anything else. It's the thing that dictates who you are more than anything else. And the Lord wants you to be free of it just as he wants us all to be free of unforgiveness in our own sin. And so this gift of forgiveness, as it comes with a call for responsibility, it also means that we are granted the ability and the power of the Spirit. Remember, you're not called to do this alone. And again, remember the plural pronoun here. For those of you who are wrestling with unforgiveness, you are not to wrestle with this alone. And you need to understand that you wrestling with unforgiveness affects us all. It affects this entire church because it means that you are not using the gifts that God has given you and the ways that he has given them to you, which makes this entire body weaker as a result. So we need to be a people who help each other to move through these things, which means we've got to be able to be vulnerable, right? Because there's some things that we're all harboring that we feel like if anybody knew, if anybody knew the darkness that lurked in my heart and the things that I thought about this person or that person, they'd kick me out of the church. No, if you're willing to deal with it, we would welcome you even further in. See, we've got to be able to hear and, and recognize these darknesses and deal with them as a group and walk with each other through these things because that is what we're called to do. Remember in the great chapter in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul's talking about the body. When one weeps, what does everybody else do? We ought to weep too. And when one rejoices, what do we all ought to do? We ought to rejoice. Just like when we talked about Emma Mills last week coming to know the Lord, that should cause us to rejoice because she's now maybe not a member of Christ Community Church, but she's a member of the body of Christ. And that should cause a spark within us, a genuine desire to celebrate. And so the thing I would say to you, for those of you who are really wrestling with some of the things I'm saying and this, what Christ is saying, is, and, and you have a long, hard road in this regard. Do not suffer alone. Come and talk to those you trust. Come and discover maybe there's some you can trust that maybe you didn't think you could. And the elders or the deacons or any of us who could walk with you and love you well as you try to do this because you can't do it alone. I can tell you, I have walked this mile. When I was 18 years old, I was not a Christian. This is still not an excuse. I told my mother who is a drug addict, and my stepfather, who spent 29 years in prison, I told them both to burn in hell. That's the last, those were the last words I spoke to my mother. She would go on to overdose a few years later, and I don't ever get to take it back. 
And it is still the millstone, apart from the work of Christ. See, only in the work of Christ that I can even get up and look at any of you and say any of this, because otherwise I'm guilty. I had the chance to go to my stepfather and ask his forgiveness. He was utterly blown away. He said, what are you asking me forgiveness for? Shouldn't I ask for yours? I said, yours, yours has already been granted. And so I know and have carried this. Um, I was abused as a child by an older boy. And one time I saw him in the grocery store and it was all that I could do not to kill him. I know that should freak you out that your pastor would say that. It was pre-Christian. I was still white trash from a trailer park. But still, I, I just, I, I wanted, but tell me this. If I had, would it take away one minute's worth of my suffering? Not one. In fact, it would increase it because I'd have all this time in jail to think about it. Because you kill somebody in the middle of a Kroger, you tend not to get away with it. So I understand I have walked and been hurt and know what it's like to carry unforgiveness like a millstone. And I'm sure there's some things, even as I will take the time to pray this Lord's Day, and as I have been praying, Lord, show me where my darkness lies. Show me my anxiety. Show me where I am unforgiving, and it is crippling me as the pastor of this flock. Help me. Help me to forgive where I maybe am refusing. And so I'm asking the same question. I'm praying the same things that maybe you are. And so we're in this. I want you to know we're in this together. And I know that it could be hard. And I know that there are, there are points that you don't maybe want to even deal with just yet. But let the Lord prepare you. Ask the Spirit to prepare you for whatever it is that he wants to do to set you free in this thing. So that we can do as a body what we couldn't do with all of the millstones we're carrying. And so, <clears throat> how is it, and this is a Richard Sibbs quote, how is it that if Christ God humbled himself to redeem us, that we could stand in pride against another and refuse forgiveness? Think about that for a second. If, if the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, humbled himself and the person in the work of Christ to redeem us, how in the world we who are not holy, we who have written no law, we who are not creators in the ultimate sense, we who don't have the ability to destroy the body and the soul, how in the world can we refuse in great arrogance and pride what the Lord our God has so freely given to us? And we also have to recognize that when we refuse to forgive, that we are actually rejecting God's glory. You understand that, right? That God's glory is intimately tied to forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption, right? We are refusing his kingdom. We are refusing his will. And we are refusing to hallow his name. So we are undoing everything we have prayed. Spurgeon says it very strongly. He says, if you pray this and you're unwilling to forgive, you are praying your own death sentence or death warrant. Wow, that's strong language, and I didn't even want to include that quote because it kind of freaked me out too. But I think he's right. I think he's right. If we won't forgive, how in the world can we, can we expect the same be given to us? And so, in the same way that we reject his kingdom and we reject his redemptive will and we reject the hallowing of his name, we, in essence, are bringing judgment upon ourselves. If you would, um, it'll come up on the screen, Luke 6, 37 through 38. Um, says this, it says, judge not 
and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Um, and good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. I remember as a young Christian reading that, and it was probably one of the more terrifying verses that I had read. Because it really scared me that but, uh, but again, I didn't understand the work of the Spirit and the power that God gives and the indwelling of the Spirit and the power that God gives and the union with Christ that we can, we can read this and say amen because we've been set free to give in such great measure that we could receive back in greater measure. Amen? So this is actually a verse of grace and not something for us to be afraid of because we've been empowered to do it. This is what the church is to be known for. Think about it in your church experience. What has caused the most problems in any church? Is it really a wolf that comes in growling and baring his teeth that causes the most problems? Is he always that obvious? Does Satan show up with horns and a cape so we know exactly who he is? What does Satan oftentimes look like? One of us. Me. And so often what happens in a church is not the wolf that comes roaring in the front door, but the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. Those little things that happen that we refuse to deal with, all of the Matthew 18s that we refuse to practice, the issues that we have with one another that instead of going directly to that person and having it dealt with in terms of forgiveness and reconciliation, we go to another person. And we set the fire of gossip. As James says, the, the tongue is a roaring fire. See, it is those things that blow us apart because it excavates us from the inside out. And it weakens us such that when the wolf does come, we're so weakened, we are overtaken. And so I would say to you this morning, I don't know of anything, so don't hear me. Oh, Cameron's calling somebody out. I knew it. I'm not. I'm not. I don't know of anything. But I am saying to you, if there is anything, please, for the sake of the glory of God, deal with it. For the sake of the beauty of the bride of Christ and the work of the ministry, deal with it. Go to whomever you need to go to, even if you think it's silly. Let them say, that's silly, I forgive you, I love you. Even if you think it doesn't mean anything at all, go to them as led by the Spirit, by the way, don't just flat-footed jump up and grab somebody, but go to them in love and seek their reconciliation, seek their forgiveness for the strength of the church. Amen? Listen to what John Stott says in the book Christian Counterculture. He says, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. What is the clearest evidence of our having been forgiven by God? What did Christ say? Our willingness to forgive others. The clearest evidence that you are forgiven is your willingness to forgive others. I would ask that you would take this Lord's Day to consider, is there anyone that you're struggling to forgive? 
And how might we help you? At the end of the service, we'll have, um, in that interim time, there will be even still elders in the back corner who will take the time to pray with you. If you need something further, by all means, make an appointment. Let's get together. Let's hash through what we need to hash through so that you can grow. Because this is defining you. This is changing you in all of the wrong ways. This is keeping you from growing. I know. Listen to what Philip Graham Ryken says in his book, When You Pray. He says, the ability to forgive is one of the surest signs of having been forgiven. It is part of the proof that we have received God's grace. Those who are truly forgiven, truly forgive. The sins they commit are of greater importance to them than the sins they suffer. Man, I wish that was true of me. I wish that the sins that I committed were of such um, powerful and odorous uh, and it just overwhelmed me so much more than when I am offended by someone else. I am nowhere near as offended by my own sin as I am by someone who transgresses me. I just have to confess that to you and I'm working on it. But would that this would be true of me? Would that this would be true of us? Would that this would define our church? People would know us because we are showing signs of having been forgiven. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight, now does it? It's part of sanctification. Praise God that he's kind enough to teach us this, right? Listen, Jesus teaches us in this text, Matthew 6, 12, and 14, and 15, that we are debtors who do not have the ability to pay our debt to God. That's clear straight away. If we get to ask for forgiveness, that means that we cannot grant it ourselves. We can't gain it ourselves. Second, God is gracious and he is a gracious and loving father who is faithful to forgive our debts by grace alone. Third, God's forgiveness comes with a call to action to forgive others as ambassadors of his reconciliation. So if you have been granted forgiveness, you are now called, you are now challenged, you are now um, given the ability and the power of the spirit to go and grant forgiveness to others to begin the reconciliation process. And we are called to do this as family, to help one another along the way and to not suffer this alone. Now, what's so beautiful about being able to do a baptism after reading a text like this is that baptism is such a clear picture of God's forgiveness of us in the midst of a season when we cannot save ourselves. Now, for those of you who are visiting with us and you um, uh, come from a tradition where you all don't do infant baptism, I'm not going to be able to convince you in the few minutes that I have to do this baptism. That's okay. But what I hope that you will hear and not, not miss, regardless of what, you, what we think about baptism, is that baptism, whether it's an adult or a child, is not about what we promise. It's about what God has promised and is accomplishing in Christ alone. And that he grants by faith alone through grace alone. So whether it's a child or whether it's an adult, it is not about what we are bringing to the table. It's about what God has promised. Amen? Because if you read any of the texts in the Bible about baptism, it is always about God's promises. It is always about what God is doing and will do that grants us the ability to even identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. 